Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk Podcast. Great to have you here. Happy to hand the microphone over to our esteemed conference co-chair, Stacey Enzing Seng. Stacey, of course, is a venture partner at Lightstone, but also served as a co-chair at the June 1st conference and will return as co-chair for next year's conference, which is happening on May 31st, by the way. And uh, she'll be joined by Leslie Trigg, CEO of Outset, as, uh, as co-chair. So we're excited to, uh, to work with uh, those two and uh, looking forward to our first meeting. We're actually scheduling it for a couple of weeks. So we're already working on the MedTech Conference for 2018. So shoot me an email if you have any thoughts about uh, ideas for the conference. My email is tom at healthogy.com. Today, though, Stacy will be uh, interviewing Joe Ameda from Baxter. Uh, Joe, of course, took over as uh, CEO and chairman of the company uh, a short time ago, relatively short time ago, and has done a lot in, in changing its culture and its direction. Stacy uh, covers a lot of ground in this conversation. She interviewed him at the June 1st conference. So I think you'll, uh, you'll appreciate the many thoughts uh, conveyed here and the many, uh, the many points discussed. So I am not going to talk anymore. I'm going to hand this microphone sort of figuratively over to Stacey Enzing Singh for an interview with Joe Almeida of Baxter. Before I uh, ask a number of questions to Joe, and like we've done earlier, there certainly can be some time for questions at the end, I wanted to give just a little bit of an additional insight and bio on Joe and uh, give you a perspective on really all of the incredible experiences you've had that have kind of brought you to this point today. So Joe is a native of Brazil, and he was educated with a mechanical engineering degree, but he actually went into management consulting with Anderson Consulting as his first experience. Uh, when he left consulting, that's what directed him then into healthcare, and uh, he joined Johnson and Johnson. Uh, from that point forward, really, it's been kind of a rocket ship ride with a number of different healthcare companies uh, that are going to be familiar to everyone. He's worked with American Home Products. He's worked with um, Great Batch, Tyco Healthcare. And then, of course, Covidian, which is where we first met each other. And when he was with Covidian, he was the president of the international business. Uh, He was the president of the medical devices group. And then in 2012, with Rich Melia's uh, transition and retirement, Joe ascended to be the president, CEO, and chairman of the board with Covidian, And obviously there, it really became a very well-known name because of the incredible support, candidly, for the um, entrepreneurial community, the number of venture investments that Covidian made, the number of acquisitions that Covidian made. And I can tell you firsthand that uh, this was certainly because of a relentless appetite for innovation that I know Joe still has today. And all of us are very familiar and aware of the transaction between Covidian and Medtronic, the largest uh, transaction really in med device history to this point. Um, And then, of course, in January 2016, uh, Joe became the CEO and chairman of Baxter. 
And uh, actually, earlier this year, some of you may not be quite aware, but Joe also has joined the board as an independent director with the Walgreens Boots Alliance, uh, which actually, I think, is, you know, very clearly involved in healthcare. So a tremendous uh, number of experiences. Um, most importantly, uh, Joe is married to Kirsten Almeida, who in her own right uh, is pretty impressive in the nonprofit sector. And additionally, uh, Joe is the father of two daughters and obviously very, very proud of all of their accomplishments. So I'm going to begin there with, wow, you have really accomplished a lot in the last 30 years. And Perhaps one of the things that I wanted to start with is instead of kind of resting on some pretty incredible accomplishments, uh, 12 months post-Covidian acquisition, you jump back in, and not only do you jump back in, but you jump back in as a public company CEO. So why, and why Baxter? Um, Let's start with the end of the question. I wasn't employed. So, so it's pretty straightforward. You start working when you were available. Uh, second, um, you don't just go for one. It's like uh, you go for a second, a third. If you have gas in the tank, and all of us uh, who are in this industry, which is a wonderful industry because having the ability to um, engage with patients, engage with clinicians, engage with, uh, with the market, make us uh, a different a type of people in business. So having an opportunity to do it again with a company that has a great uh, a brand and name uh, was absolutely a, 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 a goal for, for us. So talking to Kirsten, and she, she was always very supportive. And also, how many rounds of tennis can you play every day? And, and, and then you start joining boards, and the more boards you join, the more you want the CEO job who is at the front. I said, okay, I'm, a, I'm in the wrong business here. Let's me go, let me go back and look at opportunities. And I uh, and, uh, got a call from David Veed, who is sitting here uh, from Corn Ferry. Uh, uh, was August, August 2015, so it was bust seven months after the transaction had been completed, and I got very excited. One thing is, never take anything for granted. Don't think your accomplishments of the past mean anything other than give you a little bit more experience to fight for for a job, but when you interview, you interview for the job like it's the thing that you want the most. So I want that job as much as I wanted the first internship I had when I was in, in, in engineering school. And I prepared, and I did all the work that had to be done. Uh, I went, uh, not only interview, but look at the area, made sure that, that we want to we live there. So do things, if you do it, do it always the best way you can. And, and it's not about uh, what you did in the past, but it's about what you learned from the past and what you're going to build in the future today. And right out of the gates, what attracted you when you were doing that diligence? What attracted you to Baxter to say, this is the one. This is where I want to make what is an awesome responsibility and commitment when you sign up you know, to be a CEO anywhere, but I think especially because of the public and transparency nature, nature of a public company CEO, you know, what attracted you to Baxter as the one? Um, all... The inspiring leaders that I had, I was in operations for many years, and 
my boss at that time at a company called Kendall Healthcare, they became Tyco Healthcare, they became Covidian. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name Mike Mahoney, uh, not Mike Mahoney from Boston Scientific, but a Boston uh, Mike Mahoney who was with Baxter, American Hospital and Baxter. And I always heard so many things about Baxter. Second, you know the brand. Then third uh, is a very compelling mission. And then we look at, um, at, the, at the genesis of a company, almost like Covidian was when we uh, went from being a part of Tyco International and became a public company with the separation of Baxalta that posteriorly was purchased by uh, Shire. The company was starting again with a portfolio that was somehow a bit neglected uh, because the blood fractionation business and uh, is a much more uh, margin attractive. So looking at that, I said, what an opportunity. You know, uh, the company started with, um, you know, a great mission, products essential to healthcare. Um, you can't have surgery at a hospital today if we don't have our products. We have from saline bags to anti- antibiotics, they're injectable, uh, to sealants, hemostasis, and every day we deliver to more than probably 150,000 patients around the globe uh, peritoneal dialysis that makes them uh, live another day. So uh, looking at this whole thing, I said, why not? You know, what a chance to take this portfolio. What an opportunity financially as well when you look at the balance sheet. Great leverage opportunity. And also coming to a company that had, uh, uh, you know, uh, in the past a culture of innovation that may have lost its way. So why not bring what I know, what I've learned from so many good people in my career to Baxter? That's great. Well, we're definitely happy to see you landed there. Um, you know, one of the things you've been very public about since you've joined Baxter and you were very insistent on this at Covidian is that the requirement was to be a top quartile uh, total shareholder return performer. And uh, it's really been quite impressive to see what has been accomplished over the last 17 months. I know you're probably far from your destination, but, you know, the company has grown in value uh, from roughly about $22 billion to $32 billion in market cap, and that's been in a short 17 months. So where have you focused on, let's call it, the strategy and cultural priorities and shifts that needed to happen? Because when you look at Baxter in the preceding five years, you know, there really wasn't a lot of movement, even if it was a history of innovation. Mm -hmm. So how did you come into that? What did you focus in on? And just, you know, share some insight on what that shift has looked like, because clearly some things have been happening. Well, um, I always thought about focusing on top quartile performance. And I thought, well, that's something that we did before, and uh, it's complex, but you can do it. But why did I do not 100% or something that I missed before? And there were two things. One was creating a place that is the best place to work. So people not only love the mission, but they come to work every day and they want to be there. And I I think uh, in my prior experience, I probably did not focus as much as I I should have focused. So I was talking to a former colleague of Covidian, Amy Wendell, 
and AIM used to be our head of business development and, and strategy. And as I was talking to her, I remember it was uh, my last day of fun in Miami before I came back to take the CEO job, and she said, don't forget about the people. And that stuck with me, and I said, having top quartile performance is one thing. Performance, best place to work, and um, quality and patient safety, which was something that we had some issues at Baxter before, uh, were the right places to start. Then, if you think about the performance itself, you know, you want to be a top quartile company, it's not very difficult to think about what do you have in terms of your cash flows. You regress them into some analytical indicators, and you can see what's the gap between you and the best in the industry. And then you come up with a plan through portfolio management, allocation of capital amongst business, and what is your balance sheet capacity to be able to augment and create the, the journey to top quartile. So it sounds easy. It's not that easy, but once you think about it, and that is one portion of it. But if you have people who are miserable coming to work every day, it doesn't matter how good your financial and strategic groups are, they, we're going to fail. So the, it took as much work to address the, the cultural piece as it is taking to address the portfolio piece. Um, and I tell you that um, um, you know, every day you come to work, and our mission is quite simple and something that is really... Uh, um, uh, rally our folks around that is saving and sustaining lives. So once you have the very simple mission but very profound, you can wrap aspirations, strategies, and then behaviors around it, and people understand more simply where you're going to get. And earlier today, we had Mike Mahoney here. You know, he talked about the importance of culture also as being a defining factor to success. As you've looked at the last 18 months, where are the areas specifically on culture that you said, here's an opportunity for us to change, and how have you actually gone about doing that? I mean, what would be your advice to the other operating executives on how you affect that? Um, For the first time in my life, I have a, a LinkedIn account, which is kind of... Because you talk about it face- went live today, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So Facebook, you talk about Facebook. I don't know what Facebook is. Actually, I know, but I don't have an account. I'm forbidden to have a lot of those accounts, uh, mainly because I'm going to hook up with the folks who I used to, you know, went to school with me in Brazil. So it became really difficult. Thirty years ago, there was no email, so the phone was too expensive. Facebook is the way, but I can't have it. So hopefully through LinkedIn, I'll be able to get it. But I wrote, there's an article. Uh, um, uh, note I wrote today about culture will eat your strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and, and just will make a milkshake out of it. Okay? So there's absolutely no way, no way you can transform a company through just having the best strategic or strategy models, have your MA group producing significant amount of paper in terms of opportunities and deployment of capital and moving things. Nothing works. So what we found was a company, old company, phenomenally traditional, 85 years old, um, with a significant amount of bureaucracy and layers, and things did not move. 
there was somebody called Global. Every time I traveled, oh, Global doesn't allow me to do this. I didn't want to meet a Global guy or the Global person. And so, oh, he's stuck in Global. It takes two years to do it. It's too expensive. Oh, this study, minimum $50,000 per patient. So those are the behaviors that impede a company in moving. So you have a large company. If you're managing a small, mid-sized company, small company, don't ever let your company have layers that will put people in charge of one person that is going to make very difficult for the person making decisions to actually make decisions. So imagine if you are in a situation in the middle of a war and you're a platoon being attacked by enemy. Uh, would you call the central command no, 12 hours apart, and say, hey, by the way, they're shooting some stuff at us here. They're about three times our size. What do you think we should be doing? No. You want people there at the factories, people creating contracts at your customers, people making decisions about clean contracts, to be owning what they make decisions on. And it's always this conversation, because the team did this and the team did that. Who is the team? You are the team. You don't go talk to a supervisor. You make the decision. Good or bad is yours. So the company had this horrible habit of let's do more analysis. I want you to go back. So I had a, a funny thing. I used to take two pieces of paper and rub them against each other. I said, this is the sound of our company working. It's paper going back and forth. So <laughs> I tell you something. I have a wonderful group of employees, everybody well um, a well um, intended, but we had to reduce the number of layers. So we have six layers between myself and the, any lowest level of the organization. No, nobody has uh, one direct report. You have to have five or six or seven, and you're accountable for the decisions you make. So we rewrote some of the values that we had and tagged along some really good values that Baxter had. One of them is adaptability, uh, decision-making capability, empower people to make the calls. And I tell you, uh, after 18 months... I would say, in baseball terms, third inning. If you're in a cricket match, uh, probably end of first day. And if you're playing soccer, it will be 20 minutes in the first half. So it had to be, because you give this talk to people all over the world, you talk about the step up to the plate, and then go to the mound, and all these baseball terms, a Brazilian talking about that <laughs> on top of it. It's kind of funny. So I have to give other examples. But basically, what you want is, it is relentless. Don't ever go into a job like this thinking you're going to be done in a couple of years. You're never done. You're going to retire, and it's going to continue to be there for somebody else to take care Culture is like having a garden. You don't plant. You don't take care. It goes away pretty quickly and goes away from you. And people will revert back. So it is like nitinol. Some of you know what nitinol is? Okay. So I tell, by the way, you tell, tell this at Baxter, some of pharmaceutical company, nobody knows what nitinol is. So this audience here, people know. It's a metal that has memory and goes back. Focus on the culture. 70%. Strategy is 10%, execution is 90%. do not focus on culture, you're done. We're going to take a quick break from this conversation between Stacey and Zing Seng and Joe Almeida to uh, ask you to sign up for the MedTech Talk newsletter. It uh, will send information about these podcasts to you every week. You'll get a nice write-up about the guests. You'll get some important links. And you'll find out more about our MedTech conference as it comes together. So 
please do go to medtechconference.com or healthogy.com. That is the word health, followed by letters egy.com. Sign up for the MedTech Talk newsletter. We'll have all this great stuff sent directly to you. Now back to this conversation. Those are some great comments, and I would I would argue that your focus on being relentless and nurturing culture also apply to something I've heard you talk a lot about, which is innovation, and that you can't rest with you know a single innovation model. And Anne, who was on our venture panel earlier today, uh, she actually talked about the fact that Baxter has just signed a five-year agreement with Mayo. And, you know, one of the things I guess I'd be interested in from your perspective, a lot of these larger companies have traditionally utilized internal R&D, venture, acquisition, to obviously fuel innovation and acquire new technology. How are you looking at, and why do you think these collaborations are important? Uh, We also have Andrew Cleland from the Fogarty Institute that's here, Dr. Mark Turco, who's now the Chief Information Officer at UPenn. You know, so this potentially looks like a new way for innovation collaboration. How do you see that as growing your innovation profile? You can go and try to seed money everywhere in the world. You can get WR&D. The whole thing is start with the portfolio management of the company. What are the things that are worth doubling the investment? What are the things that you should not be investing more than you're investing today or less? So the first thing we did was to understand where the money was being spent. And, 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 and unfortunately, it was being spent in areas which have very little um, effect in the growth of the company. And even clinically, they were very difficult um, to, uh, to produce results as well as technically to produce results. So the first thing was to reallocate money. And this was one of the frustrations I always had as an executive managing businesses, the ability to really move money around in companies, primarily large companies, because they're well-established and the infrastructure is in place. But we were able to quickly reallocate money and found phenomenal innovation sitting on the shelves of our company. For instance, our point of care uh, in peritoneal dialysis. If you know that the the system is a cycler in most countries, you have a two-liter bag, it goes through the the peritoneum and filters through osmosis the toxins that that the kidney is not uh, filtering. Um, Well, we're going to solution on demand. We had the technology sitting there. We just took off the shelf. We're going to have the first clinical trial patient next year and was in-house. So great deal of innovation is in-house. Capital allocation usually try is the first, is the first indicator of in- innovation uh, killing uh, process. The second thing is um, your people need to be out there. They need to understand what is being developed, not in-house. You know your capabilities. You've got to go out. So university, hospitals, venture capital, and, and so, so Anne was here today, Anne works with us at Baxter, and CISO said, you know, we are revamping our, our VC business. We did not have any contacts in Israel, and you think about, if you are in MedTech and you don't have a foot in Israel, you're missing a big part of innovation. Um, so we are uh, inking couple agreements with universities in Israel. Uh, we just did the Mayo uh, deal, and we're, we're going to uh, 
go more in terms of a strategic portfolio management in venture capital than financial returns. Uh, financial return is necessary, but it's a secondary indicator for your internal venture capital. You've got to make sure that you have eyes and ears everywhere because I can guarantee you there's always somebody as smart or smarter than we are doing something much more focused 24-7, and none of us are doing 24-7 anything singly, singularly. So we've got to be able to find people who have that capability and the ability to get there. So we are um, launching this product in a couple of years. We found another one. How do you get peritoneal dialysis solutions to places like Indonesia, western China, north of Brazil? Pre, you, know, you don't have a way. You have to build these enormous factories. So now we have technology called local solutions manufacturing, a a piece of equipment, very affordable, that can produce uh, solutions for 100 to 110 patients a day for two bucks or less. So that's how you get to places that make a difference in innovation, going back to the mission of saving and sustaining lives. That's great. So another area, let's say, that I, I think is pretty interesting and it's been touched on a bit today is this construct of smart therapeutic devices that are allowing information and data to make some personalized patient decisions that may be helping to create a shift in the site of care. So what is going through your mind from a vision perspective of how healthcare may change, how Baxter may change when it comes to, let's say, smart devices, big data, alternative care sites? Um, we have now a group within our global business units focused 100% in uh, digital health. We always had a significant amount of data collection. Remember, we service not only hospitals, but we service uh, patients every day. We have now ShareSource, which is a software platform which monitors the patients at home through the dialysis machines we are finding that we were not equipped to deal with the data and to interpret the data. Remember, these are data lakes. These are millions and millions and hundreds of millions of data points that you've got to be able to deal with. So your traditional way of having your, your IT group look at relational databases, this is not a relational database. These are data lakes. They're specifically applications around the globe that can sift through data. Like, for instance, people look tweeted. Uh, um, Twitter and tweets to check weather pattern changes because people tweets they will change and people's moods will change and that detection is important so the people using that so imagine how much data is available in healthcare but we're ill-equipped to absorb and actually transform this data in things such as we came to find out that using this telemedicine platform we have we're having patients stay in peritoneal dialysis for a few more months than they used to do before. And staying more months in that uh, therapy is much more beneficial than having to be cannulated and go to a clinic three times a week for four hours. So you think about where was this data? It was always there. Now we're starting to sift through the data and understand how to position uh, the clinician to, re to, to monitor and to remove the barriers of the therapy at home. So uh, much more to come. You can look at how, how you, you look at infusion therapy um, and other things that we're going after in terms of understanding of data as well as safety of devices and 
in better delivery of therapy. Um, but the devil is in the detail. There's a lot of talk about it. There's, you can spend a ton of money um, uh, with consultants, and at the end of the day, you've got to just get, a, get going. Get, get a one program, do the pilot, get people who know how to deal with data, and start getting some results. Fail, fail twice, fail three times, eventually you get there. This time is going so fast. I'm looking at the clock here, and I know I would be remiss with all the entrepreneurs in the room. Uh, With the history you had at Covidian of acquiring, and I know in the investment that you made at EV3, I think we made within our business unit six investments and acquisitions, so you're very bullish on acquiring technology. Give us some insight on, especially under maybe this construct of consolidation. You know, we've seen Cardinal J&J doing some work together, Becton Dickinson and BD. I mean, uh, Bard and Becton Dickinson. Um, Just what's your appetite? Where do you want to take the company? How do you think about whether it's in adjacencies or are you going to go all the way to white spaces? Um, just some insight maybe on some moves we should see. You and I the, do know you're public. You want, to, you want the price to go up? <laughs> keep talking about this strategy. The price is already high. It's going to be even higher. So um, I think um, you've got to look at several different things in strategy. Acquisition is not the panacea. It's not a cure for your lack of growth. What it is is a strategy, uh, is a strategic move that is, has to be well, uh, uh, well put together. So when we went to acquire EV3, we knew there were two spaces. One, very desirable, neurovascular, underpenetrated with potential. The other one was peripheral vascular, which we thought that being number one and number two was very beneficial in terms of margins and accretion to the company's top line, but was not cheap because you buy a platform, you've got to have the money to do the follow-through. So you bet, you bet the house. Now you have a balance sheet that has sub-investment grade uh, ratings. Now, get money to invest following that acquisition was a problem. So that was our thinking uh, in the EV2. We had enough money to do the follow-throughs, and if we didn't do the follow-throughs, you can ask Stacy Pugh, who was sitting here, was here before. She will tell you that without the follow-through, we wouldn't be left behind without a bunch of uh, opportunities that the Medtronic today has in that business. The same thing as I, t- I tell the folks at, at Baxter, it's not about buying to augment the top line. It's about changing the weighted average market growth rate of your end businesses. So if you are going for a platform, you go to something that can provide you with growth through markets that currently you are not participating. And that will then open your company for better follow-through acquisition. So we do have a pristine balance sheet. We have our debt, uh, net debt over the next 12 months. EBITDA is, is sub one. So, but that is not an excuse to go do bad deals or to spend money, which I always say is not ours, is our shareholders' money. So strategically, we know where we want to go. There are four areas that were very uh, focused, advanced surgery, renal, um, uh, pharmaceuticals, and the pharmacies, mostly injectables. 
um, and we're going into biosimilars as well, and uh, critical care. Those are the areas that we look at. You can get there many different ways, um, expensive ways, but you can also spread the risk. You can do a big one, or you can do several small ones, which I actually sometimes like better because you build that string of pearls that allows you to get to the end point much more successfully um, with different kinds of integration risks. I would say that uh, Baxter today with a SGNA of 22.6% and with us uh, removing $800 million of cost, we now optimize our company to be able to absorb acquisitions and make them very, very efficient. Uh, in the past, I didn't have that kind of confidence because we had things, that, systems that were all over the place. And now our, our business transformation office and then a wonderful job through our uh, uh, CFO um, and who manages that, a great job there alongside providing us you know, the ability to now invest. But you... Um, um, you and I work together. Uh, I'm very financially disciplined, so you won't see me uh, making bets that I don't firmly believe will benefit the company in the long run as well as our shareholders and align to the mission. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So are there some questions that anyone has here in the audience? We do have time for one or two, and if not, I have another one. Okay, well, I am going to end on this because I, uh, Joe, the other thing you've been very supportive of is diversity. And uh, Joe was a sponsor for me at Covidian, which I found incredibly valuable. But I'd love to hear from you um, because it's been very important to you in leading companies. From your perspective to all of the leaders, you know, regardless of where you come from, why is this construct of diversity relevant to the bottom line? Why is it worth investing in from your perspective? It's a simple ROI. You can look at all publications, all the research. A diverse group at any company will make returns 20, 20 plus percent higher than a company that doesn't have. You can look at boards and you can look at companies. Um, I'm very fortunate that come to Baxter, uh, which is a company that has adopted this in a much more aggressive way, which is the right way to address it. Um, we is not a human resources job; it's everyone's job. We are amongst the you know, top uh, 100. Uh, uh, corporate citizens. We are uh, listed amongst the best place to work uh, for LGBT. We have a significant amount of awards as a company, and I don't feel uh, um, I'll brag on behalf of the company. I personally had little to do with this. I'm so happy that I came there, so I'm humble to just give continuation and more impetus to it, because the company has done a great job. I would say to you that I had my 19-year-old daughter, who is uh, just finishing freshman year in business school, um, undergrad in business, and she came to spend a day. She wants to be in finance. I said, I don't know why you want to be in finance, but I'm surprised you don't want to be an engineer. There, but she comes in and she spends the day with our finance group, different people, and she then spends a half an hour, 45 minutes with the head of investor relations for Baxter, Claire Trackman. Claire is a wonderful person, phenomenally well respected, and uh, number one profession in that area in my mind. And Teresa, my daughter, came home and said, Dad, that was the best time I ever spent. I talked to a lot of people today. And it was not about the technical stuff. It was about how 
a woman succeeds in the workplace and how can they make a difference, how they can balance their lives. And it's all about the questions that Teresa had, how to engage in the workforce in a different way. And we tend to give people the same path of work. This is how we do it. Look at this. Technically, this is... And, and, and Clary spends no time talking about the technical aspect of it, but how her experience as a woman in the company uh, 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 and allowed her to succeed and what the things that she did. And, and for my daughter to highlight that, so this was the best part of my day. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that the adverse workplace is not something that is, is just nice. It's your responsibility as a leader. To create that difference is your responsibility, not only to the people, your stakeholders, but also to your shareholders, because you know you're going to have much better results with a much more diverse group of people that will think differently and will make a difference at the end of the day. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking your time with us today, and best of luck. We look forward to what you will do with Baxter. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you. And that is a wrap. Thanks so much, Joel Mader from Baxter, for joining us at the MedTech Conference in Minneapolis. It was a pleasure to have you and Michael Mahoney of Boston Scientific to, uh, to sort of serve as keystones of our conference, and uh, we're grateful for your time and your thoughts. Stacey Hensing Singh, our esteemed co-chair, thank you so much for leading this great conversation and for putting together such a fantastic program. Look forward to working with you and Leslie Trigg on next year's event, which again is happening on May 31st in Minneapolis. Finally, MedTech Talk Podcast listeners, thank you for joining us. Shoot me an email again, tom at healthfidgy.com. Let me know what I'm doing right, what I'm doing wrong, who I should talk to, or just say hello. Give us a ranking on iTunes. That would be an enormous help. Or uh, just tell your friends if they like MedTech Innovation as much as you do. They should be listening to the MedTech Talk Podcast. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another tale of innovation.